This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Uh, Open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And uh, this morning we are... Uh, going to attempt a lot. I'm going to cover 42 verses uh, this morning, and uh, I posted that on the city this week, said what we'd be covering, John 4, 1 through 42, on the Sunday sermon group, and uh, then I was immediately informed by someone, you get a minute per verse, so people are free to share their opinions as to how long I should uh, preach on the city. That is one of the beauties of the city. You can voice those kind of views. And I feel more than free to disregard your view, but um, you can, you're welcome to state it if you would like. So, uh, but in all seriousness, the person is recognizing that's a lot of verses and uh, not a lot of time. So uh, I'm going to jump right in. And here's how we're going to cover this. Because there are so many verses, what I'd like to do is uh, just read a few verses and then comment, read a few more verses and comment, and then we'll camp sort of at the end of the chapter or at the end of this section and draw out some application. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we thank you for your word, that it is living, that it is active, that it is powerful, and we're asking you uh, this morning to speak to us clearly and powerfully with conviction and with hope as you Show us the Savior and His glorious heart in this text. We ask that the Holy Spirit would point us in a very clear way to the work of Jesus today in a way that would change us. God, please change us today as we encounter You in Your Scripture. Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Fill us all with Your Spirit to be hearers and doers of Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John 4, let's begin. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 here to begin with. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, this is kind of the context to this passage. Jesus has been in Jerusalem. Uh, if you recall, he had been gone there for, uh, uh, for a feast, a feast of Passover, had been with the people, and now the mounting opposition, which is always in the background in the Gospel of John, all the Gospels, the mounting opposition of the religious leaders uh, is increasing, so he leaves town. They are getting wind of the fact that Jesus is gathering a following. In fact, um, John the Baptist, who's had enormous success, uh, is now baptizing fewer people than Jesus' disciples. So people are coming to Jesus, they're beginning to follow Jesus, and the religious leaders get sight of this. So Jesus decides to leave and go out to a more rural area, out to Galilee, and to reach people and to minister there. In verse 4 it says, He had to pass through Samaria. Well, uh, 
Actually, he had other options. You, you didn't have to pass through Samaria, and a strictly religious Jew would not pass through Samaria because that was an unclean area. So a strictly religious Jew would have gone around, but Jesus had to go through. The had is not so much a statement about geography as it is a statement about his mission. For he is sent by the Father. This series we're calling Sent. Jesus is sent by the Father to bring salvation. And God is now leading him, the Father is leading the Son, um, to go through Samaria where he will encounter a lady and bring salvation to her, and in fact, a whole town. He will bring the gospel, the good news to. He will bring himself to. So the had is a statement of his mission to go through Samaria. It's noon, and he's tired from traveling, so he sits down at this well, and that is the context for the meeting of this woman. Let's look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, Jesus sits down, a woman walks up at noon to the well And uh, he engages in conversation with her. Jesus takes initiative and asks her for a drink. She's at this well, she's drawing water, and he asks her for a a drink. And her response is one of shock. She she says to him, uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman? And then John explains, for those of us who may not understand this context, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she's she's shocked on two levels. First of all, he's a Jew and he's engaging in conversation with her, a Samaritan, and he is asking for a drink of water. So it's shocking to her in the first place that a Jew would be talking to a Samaritan. See, the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. The Jews despised the Samaritans because they were a mixed mixed, uh, race, so to speak. They, uh, They were part Jew, that their ancestors were part Jew, or were, were a mixture of Jew and Gentile who intermarried, and uh, it, by their intermarriage then came the Samaritans. So they certainly believed um, in, the, in the God of the Old Covenant, they believed 
in God, yet they were mixed racially. They weren't pure Jews. And so the Jews were opposed to them and viewed them as actually unclean. They had nothing to do with them. And the shocking thing here is not only would it be to expose oneself to uncleanness to be talking with this Samaritan, but he's actually uh, asking if he can drink after her out of her cup. You'll notice later she says, you have nothing to draw water with. Jesus is sitting there and saying, basically, can I have some of your water? Exposing himself to her by potentially being uh, unclean by drinking after her. Secondly, it's shocking that that he's talking to her, a woman. That's what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Strict Jews wouldn't have spoken privately or personally with a woman, certainly not without their wife present. They were married. So uh, this is culturally uh, uh, sort of taboo at a couple of levels. But when God comes in the flesh and God comes to reach people in Jesus with the love of the Father, social convention is not really what he's concerned about. He's concerned about people's eternal destiny, and Jesus is just not going to mind extra-biblical cultural thoughts about not speaking to a woman or whatever it may be. And so he engages her in conversation. And and he actually says to her, after asking for water, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. And so he introduces this subject of living water, and she, she wants to know about that living water. She misunderstands. She thinks he's speaking literally. This happens a lot. You remember Nicodemus in chapter 3, when Jesus said, you must be born again, he wondered if, what are you talking about? Is that like coming out of your mother's womb again? He wasn't talking literally. He was talking spiritually, and he's talking spiritually here as well. She takes him literally. She thinks he's talking about uh, living water, meaning running water, as opposed to stagnant well water. So he's speaking, she thinks there's this running water somewhere that he's referring to, and she doesn't understand how he's going to access that water. She says, you don't have anything to draw water with. You know, how are you going to do that? Like, are you greater than Jacob, whose well this was, you know, centuries ago? Well, actually, yes, he is greater than Jacob, but he doesn't take that line and develop it out. Uh, He just explains to her that he's offering something that is different. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, the well water. But I am offering, he's talking about a a kind of water that the person who drinks will never be thirsty again. The water I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's addressing a thirst that's different than physical thirst. And he's about to reveal the barrenness of this woman's soul. For Her soul thirst is much greater than her physical thirst. And he is speaking in a way that is revealing that he comes to bring salvation. He comes to bring living water that will well up to eternal life. He's bringing something that will quench thirst for eternity, that will meet the deepest need of the soul, which is how can we be right with God and how can we be forgiven for our sins? Jesus is really fulfilling here a passage of Old Testament Scripture. Isaiah 12 speaks in in language that is similar to this. Isaiah 12 looks forward to a day of salvation, and this is what it says. Isaiah 12, 1 through 3. You will say in that day, 
I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, listen to the language, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. See, Isaiah is speaking of a day when people will give thanks to the Lord because God's anger is turned away from them and he brings comfort. He brings salvation and from the wells of salvation, people will draw. Well, that's what Jesus is offering her. He's saying, I'm not talking about that water. I'm talking about a living water, a life-giving water, drawing water from the wells of salvation. So she wants this water, she says, but she misunderstands verse 15 because she says, you know, I want this water so I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come here again. So Jesus continues to penetrate her heart, and we see how he does that in the next verses. Verse 16 Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So he takes the conversation further. He introduces this idea of salvation. He introduces this idea of living water to her. She doesn't quite get it. So then he begins to uh, reveal and unveil her heart to show her her real need. It's not for a drink of physical water. That's not her greatest need. Her greatest need is to receive salvation, living water. And so he shows her her need. He reveals that she's been married five times. Now, obviously, he knew this because he was God. He didn't know the woman. But she had been married five times, and now she's living with a guy that she's not married to. This is a woman who is, by that description alone, a social outcast. We know she's a social outcast because that would be completely unacceptable. We don't know what happened with the five husbands. I mean, it's certainly possible she had, she was widowed five times or maybe they divorced. She had several that divorced her or she was widowed. We don't really know. But, but the fact is that now she's living with someone that is not her husband. And that would have been totally unacceptable in that day. It wouldn't have been in, in our culture that wouldn't perhaps raise too many eyebrows publicly. But in this culture, that would raise eyebrows that she would be with a man, not with her husband. It's interesting. This is probably the reason she's out at noon drawing water. Because normally people would have come early in the morning 
or they would have come later in the day when it was cool at the beginning of the workday or at the conclusion of the workday. She's coming right in the middle at noon at the heat of the day. Perhaps it's because she would be alone there and not have to encounter the, the looks and the scorns and the judgment of those who would be there. So she is an outcast and she is in need. She is a sinner. We all are a sinner, but she would have been, had her sin recognized more publicly. She's an outcast. She's gathered there. And as soon as Jesus reveals this, she says, whoa, whoa, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then realizing that she's a prophet, she begins to kind of try to hide behind the mountains. She's standing before a prophet. So she tries to hide behind the mountains by asking a theological question. And saying, you know, you people, uh, the Jews, worship on one mountain. My people, the Samaritans, worship at another mountain, which is correct. And Jesus says, look, there's a day coming when it's not about mountains. It's not about what mountain you worship on. He says, the Lord is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And so here is Jesus demonstrating that. God is seeking worshipers. There is a day coming, there is an hour coming, and now is that time, is what he actually says. Um, He says, uh, the hour is coming and is now here. The hour is coming and is now here. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is pursuing worshipers, and he's pursuing this woman as a worshiper as well, right now. God is, Jesus is sent by the Father to rescue people, to draw them into relationship with God, to bring forgiveness of sins. And here he is to this woman who is far from God, calling her to God. Well, he gets beyond sort of the mountain discussion she asks and says that God is seeking worshipers. And so then she sort of takes another step back and kind of hides behind this future Messiah thing because then she brings up another question. Well, that's fine in essence, you know, but I know the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things, she says. And Jesus says this amazing statement, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. It's not very often in the gospels, Jesus makes this distinct of a statement about himself. But here he clearly does. He reveals himself as the one who has come and she is blown away. Here's the Messiah speaking personally to her and offering her living water, salvation. Look at what she does. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
already. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This lady instantly becomes a powerful witness. She goes back into town, away from the well, back into town, and begins telling people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. A bit of an overstatement. Uh, He didn't mention everything she ever did, but you get the point. She's saying, this guy knew me. There's no way he can know these things about me. Could this be the Christ? She's saying, look, the Messiah's out at the well. And they all, the whole town, the town went out and they were coming on their way to Jesus. It's a powerful picture. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come see a man, could this be the Christ? It's it's this powerful picture. She's coming to get water and she leaves her jar there. That empty jar really represented her life and it's left there while she goes to tell others about the Savior. In the meantime, while that's happening, I mean, the, the disciples are coming up. They've picked up whatever, take out food from town. They're bringing it to Jesus. They see him talking to the lady. They don't know what to think about this. That They are thinking, oh, he, he, they marveled that he's talking with a woman. Even his own disciples are shocked by this unconventional behavior. He's talking to her, and they, 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 they're shocked, but they don't know what to do. They don't ask anything about it. They don't ask, why are you talking with her, it says. But they're blown away. They see her get up. She goes into town and starts telling everybody about Jesus. The disciples, meanwhile, are concerned that Jesus gets something to eat. So they're saying, hey, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food that you don't know about. They start mumbling to themselves. Hey, I wonder if somebody else brought him something. How did that happen? So they're missing. They're just really missing the whole scene here. They don't know what's going on. Why is he talking to the woman? Where did he get something to eat? And then Jesus takes this moment and he's going to do two things with this story. He's going to talk then about the priority of his mission and the urgency of his mission. First of all, he talks about the priority of his mission. Look what he he says to them. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So you guys are worried about your stomach, you're worried about lunch, you're worried about getting the food here. Here's what sustains me. Here's nourishment. Here is life. This is my meal. This is what I eat, drink, and sleep. This is everything to me. Everything to me is to do the will of Him who sent me. Jesus lives with this conscious um, this conscious definition of his mission that he has sent. So I am, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is my priority. Encountering, <coughs> excuse me, this immoral woman and talking to her, offering her salvation, living water, showing her her need by revealing her sin and then announcing that he is the Messiah who has come. This is his very food. This is what God has called him to do. 
I mean, how grateful we are for this picture of Jesus, that he's not concerned primarily about the next meal. Obviously, he ate. He's fully God and fully man. He's human. So he has human needs like nourishment. But he's not driven by the next meal. He's driven by his mission. Here we see the love of God. His food is to serve. His food is to love. His food is to reach out. His food is to care. Ultimately, his food is to suffer and die in the place of sinners taking the wrath of God in our place, absorbing the judgment that was due us. That is his very food. It is a compelling picture of the love of God. Who Jesus, who could go a different way as a strict Jew would, but who has to go through Samaria. Because his mission includes meeting an outcast woman and loving her, and calling her to himself, and offering her salvation, so that she in turn would reach a town of people, a town of people that would be outcast in the Jewish mindset with the gospel. That's his priority. That's his priority. And they don't get that. They don't get that. Why is he talking to a woman? Where did he get food? Isn't he hungry? He's going to get tired. He needs to eat something. Who brought him something? No one's asking him any questions. They're just sort of discussing this among themselves. They don't understand the priority of the mission, and they also don't understand the urgency of the mission. Here's the urgency. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So do you not say, quote, there are four months and then the harvest? That was a proverb, likely a proverb, not a biblical proverb, but a saying. There are four months and then the harvest. Good proverb, bad application. Because see, sometimes you can have truth in a, in, a, in a good proverb and a good saying and not apply it well. You ever heard the proverb, keep your eye on the ball? That's generally wise. If you're batting Guys throwing the ball, it's good to keep your eye on the ball. Or you can say that metaphorically. Keep your eye on the ball. That means stay alert to what's moving. Keep your eye on the moving target. Be aware. But when I was in college and I was teaching my middle school brother how to swing a golf club, and I stood behind him and lined him up so that he could address the ball and taught him how to do it and then stepped back about that far and kept my eye on the ball, that was foolish. I should have kept my eye on the club because the club went back and the club went through and the club landed in my cheek, uh, at which point uh, there was a stream of, uh, of uh, blood coming out of my face. Uh, and at that moment, keep your eye on the ball was not, I should have just created a proverb, watch the swinging club and get out of the way. But nobody knows that proverb. So they have a proverb. They have a proverb. There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. What does that proverb mean? Well, when a farmer would plant seed, they would plant in stages, and the last seeding, the time between the last seeding and the first harvest was four months. So here's, here's the parable, I mean the proverb. What he's saying is, you plant your seed, and then you have to wait until everything comes up. It's a proverb about patience. It's a proverb about patience. Just wait patiently. The seed's planted. There's nothing you can do about it right now. Just wait, and it can't be hurried, but in time, the crop will come. Rome wasn't built in a day. That might be a similar proverb. Just wait. It takes time, but the crop will come. 
And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's a fine proverb. You say there are four months and then comes the harvest. But look, I'm telling you, look up. The harvest is now. There is no four months. It is on. Game on. Harvest time right now. Fellas, put the sandwich down and look up. The harvest is coming because right now the harvest is a city of people. Do you remember a few verses ago, they are on their way. Jesus is having a dialogue and here's a city of people walking out to them with a woman in front eagerly pointing and saying, he's the one and everybody's coming. And he's saying, you guys say it's going to be a while. Be patient. It takes time. They certainly would have applied that to the Samaritans. Oh, they don't worship in the right way. They don't, they're not pure. They don't believe what we believe. It's, if they could ever be saved, it would certainly take time. It would take time to dismantle all of the differences between us and to sort of deconstruct their views and, and, and replace them with true views. And Jesus is saying, it's not really going to take that long. They're coming right now. They're coming right now. See, the, the time of the harvest changes when the harvester is standing right there and he's commanding the harvest. When the Savior comes, the time changes. He is at work, and He is at work now. Look at how He defines the urgency and timing of the harvest. Verse 36, Already the one who reaps, that is the one who's gathered, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So we're not talking about a physical harvest. This is eternal life, people coming to know Christ, people being saved. Verse, uh, so you see he's saying now is the time. The time of harvest has arrived because the harvester has arrived. The sower and a reaper, they are rejoicing together. Verse 36, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. The sower is the person planting seeds. The reaper is the person who's taking in the harvest after the seeds have grown up. And he said everybody's rejoicing together. There are people planting seeds. There are people harvesting. There's not a four-month gap. It's all happening at the same time. Some seeds are being planted. Some crop is being harvested. But it's harvest time all the time. Now that the harvester is here. So Jesus, his coming, changes everything. Now, what he's not saying is that every, in every instance, like the moment the seed is planted, the harvest will come immediately. He's not saying that, you know, a truth to draw from this is not that there'll be instantaneous conversion every time you plant a seed. We still have, uh, should have a long haul approach to relating with people that don't know the Lord, to love them, to share with them, to communicate the gospel to them, to pray for them, and to wait. So it's not saying that that's out the window. But what he is saying is that we need to be aware that God is work at work. Because while there are seeds being planted, there is also harvest occurring at the same time. So we live now in an era after Christ. We live in an era that is constantly to be about sowing seeds, planting seeds, and harvesting. Planting seeds and harvesting. And sometimes it's instantaneous. Sometimes you plant a seed and a city crop shows up and they're pointing to them, coming down the hill to them right now. The, the irony of this whole story is that here, here is an immoral woman leading a city to Jesus. And the disciples are focusing on social convention. Why is he talking to a woman? And natural Issues like, has he eaten? He needs to eat. And who brought him food? They're, they're caught up in these kinds of things, and they're missing the reality that here's an immoral woman, and she is leading the town to Jesus. 
And that's why he says, look, that's what is, that's really the, the command of this text, verse 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. See that the fields are white for harvest. There's kind of another statement here as well, verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving uh, I'm sorry, verse 37. For here the saying holds true. So here's, now he's going to give them a proverb that is good, that is true. Here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. So wait four months. It's not the time. We don't, you know, that's not a good proverb. God's always harvesting. He's always saving people all the time. But one sows and another reaps. That's a good one. Because here's what's happening. You guys are going to be here to receive these people to the Lord, and you didn't do anything. You were getting lunch, and I was at work. One, One sowing, but they're all going to reap the joy of this. Jesus is at work in unconventional ways, doing what they would never have expected while they're running a lunch errand. Which is nothing wrong with running a lunch errand, especially bringing Jesus food. You could do a lot worse. But in the midst of that, they don't know that Jesus is at work. He is at work in ways they don't know. Orchestrating circumstances. See, this is how he works now, too. Orchestrating circumstances so a conversation takes place, so a person who at first misunderstands then sees their need for a Savior and then comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. God's at work orchestrating all that. Things like, what time does someone show up at the well? Things like questions that are asked that unlock a person's heart to see their need. See, this is how God works And it's true for us as well. There are people all around us and seeds are being planted in their lives. And we don't even know that. We don't know what's happening with the people around us. We think we do. See, we can look at someone from the outside and assess them and judge them and put them in a box and figure them out. You have no idea what's going on in someone else's heart unless they tell you. I I don't either. We We don't know what's really happening happening. But God is at work all around us. And this is really a parable. I mean, not a parable. This is really an account about the fact that the harvester has come. Look to the harvester and realize he is working and be a part of the seed sowing and the harvesting that he is doing. Because he's at work in ways he doesn't know. I'll tell you, of the three major players in this story, I sure relate a lot more with the disciples than Jesus or the woman. The, the woman is just captivated and captured by the saving power of Jesus, and she's got to go tell a whole city. Already knowing she's on the outskirts, it's not like she's the town mayor and is going to com- command. It's not like she has a commanding presence that everyone's going to listen to her. That's their moral woman that can't even go to the well when the other wives are at the well. And yet she's so taken by Jesus, she's going to tell everybody. Sadly, I don't relate with that as much as I wish I did. Because what other people will think and how they will assess that, that, that captivates my thought way too much. It doesn't captivate her. It doesn't captivate her. But I, I can relate with the disciples. Just consumed with the stuff of life. Is it wrong to go get food? To go get food for Jesus? No, it's not wrong. It's only wrong if that's what consumes our thoughts 
so that we miss the opportunity of harvest. So I can relate with just getting busy with life, work, family, food, and unaware that there is a mission. And the picture's not go get on the mission and make it happen. There's a mission already happening all around us. That's the point. The mission's happening. And God calls us to jump into his mission. See, the words to the disciples, they hit home with us and with me and maybe with you, with us. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white to harvest. See, there's a city of people walking to meet Jesus right now. And, and the reality is that if we learn anything from this account, it's that who we assume is right for harvest may, may not be the case. I mean, if you sat down with the disciples before this and said, who's the most likely evangelist we're going to meet? I think most of us would have picked the Nicodemus. He's, a, he's an influential guy. He's a righteous guy. He's a religious leader. Certainly, he'll respond and be a great evangelist for Jesus. Nobody would have said a Samaritan. Nobody would have said a woman. Nobody would have said a woman who's living with some guy who's immoral and is judged by the culture. That's the primary evangelist we're going to find here. No one would guess that. See, sometimes people that God is working in their lives, they don't initially appear to be good candidates. In this case, an immoral person who's far from God... In your case, in your culture, in your context, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, it may not be someone that's so outlandishly out there and is an outcast. It may instead be the person who looks like they're not a good candidate because they have everything together. They don't look like they have a need. I look at them and, man, they're more together than I am. What do I have to tell them about Jesus? Their life's going better than mine from what I can tell. So for us, it's not just the down and outer. It may be the up and inner. It may be the person who's on the inside. We live in a, in a city filled with people that from first glance appear to have things going for them. They appear to have minimal need. And so that may be the person that we just say, well, but we have no idea what's going on in their heart. We have no idea of the loneliness, the emptiness that there's, they're sitting around with empty jars trying to fill it up with water, but it's not sustaining. They're having to go back and get more and fill again and fill again and fill again. And Jesus is saying, I offer a kind of water that sustains you forever. It's salvation. And that's what people are thirsty for. And it just happens in our life. They just got a lot. They're just filling up a lot of jars with a lot of stuff and things. And it's, it's meaningless and it's empty. And what's more than that, they're at odds with God because of their sin. And need salvation. God is working all around. It's, it's wonderful where he says here, I sent you, verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and now you are entering into their labor. What's he talking about? Well, he may be talking about John the Baptist, who's been out serving in a lot of places. He may be talking about himself, because they're coming in and they're all going to enjoy the harvest. We don't know exactly what he's talking about, but ultimately, it is God at work planting seeds in people's lives. And that happens. I had an opportunity to talk to someone not too long ago about the Lord, did not know the Lord as far as I knew, they did not know the Lord, and they said something that I've heard many times over the years in talking to people who don't know the Lord about the Lord. 
and this is so typical. You've probably you've probably heard this as well. Said, well, you know, my mom, uh, she's she's very religious. Been praying for me. You know, everybody's got a praying mom or praying grandmother out there, and that seed that's being sown in their life. And it just could be that you're the person that God orchestrates to meet them and talk to them, and mom and grandma and whoever else that's been on their knees crying out for years. They've sown, they've labored, they've planted seeds, and you're going to walk in and be the person who gets to have the joy of seeing this person come to Christ. That's how that works. And there may be a relative of yours that you're praying for. Maybe you've prayed that. That's a good prayer to pray. You're praying for a lost relative. You've witnessed to a relative. It could be your parents. could be one of your children. could be, uh, you know, uh, an uncle or aunt or cousin or, or grandparent or whatever it may be. And a good prayer to pray is, Lord, would you send someone in their path? There's already been seeds sown. And someone else may come and encounter them. But the point is not who does the sowing and who does the reaping. The point is the harvester is at work. And we get to join him on his mission as part of the harvest, whether it's planting the seeds or whether it's being a part of the harvest. They're both happening, and they're both happening simultaneously. God is at work. Jesus has been sent. That's what he says. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus has been sent. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. And he's sending the disciples. And by implication, as we read on in the New Testament, I think it's fair to say he sends all Christians with a great commission to communicate the gospel. And sometimes that's planting seeds, and sometimes that's harvesting, but all the time the Holy Spirit is at work in ways that we do not know. And he is reaching people. And he is applying the great work which Jesus has done. The ultimate work that's been done is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit. Those are the means that bring harvest, the announced gospel. So what do we do? Do we seek to gain a greater sense of the priority and the urgency of mission? I think so. Do we repent? Do we pray? Do we take steps of faith? I think so. But I think there's something that's even more basic in this passage that that I think the Lord wants to grasp, us to grasp, or to be grasped by. And, And that is for us to look at the harvester. To look at Jesus in this passage because he's seeking people. That's what he said. He said to her, a day is coming and now, the hour is coming and is now here. The Father is seeking worshipers. He is seeking people. He is revealing himself to people. He is saving people. He is taking people who are far from him, who are, uh, who are not on the most likely to get saved list. Nobody's on that list, by the way. But most likely to get saved. He is reaching people. He is reaching people. And so we want to see him For he is the one who is harvesting. He is the one who has done salvation. We want to look at him and be motivated by him. That's what motivates the lady. This woman, what animates her, what gets her all excited, is not that, it's not that she went to an evangelism seminar, and I'm all for evangelism seminars. But what ultimately motivates her is not an evangelism seminar. What ultimately motivates her is the Savior. 
She sees him and she goes and tells, listen, I want to tell you about a guy who told me everything. He's over here. Come and see. What animates, what motivates her is the harvester, is the Messiah, is the Savior. And that's the point that he seeks to motivate the disciples as well. Look, I've got food that you don't, do, don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of the Father. And lift your eyes. The harvest is right here. I'm doing all the work. I'm saving people. And look at me. So I think the most compelling thing about mission is not that we create our own mission, our own personal mission, that we walk out our church's mission, but that we know Jesus and understand his mission and get to be participants in his mission, in what he's doing. For he is at work. The Holy Spirit is active. He is working in hearts all around us. He's working in hearts in this room this morning. I mean, there may be people here this morning, you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is not an accident that you were here hearing this. You didn't randomly show up here on an hour's less sleep today. You are here because God is at work. God is stirring. God is revealing. And He's revealing to you today that He is holy and that you are not, and that you are in need of a Savior. But the good news is He is that Savior. He saves. He gave His life. He died in our place as a substitute, taking the penalty for our sins. We deserve hell because of our sins, but He died in our place. And now if we turn from our sins, away from our sins and to Him, and we believe, we trust, we rest all of our weight on Him as the only way we can be forgiven of our sins, then we receive the forgiveness of sins. That is the good news. And if you are here today as a Christian, already as a believer, then I would urge you to look at the Savior, for He is the one who is saving, and we want to be motivated by His work and His calling and His mission. I'll read these last verses, and we're done. Look how the story ends, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him, Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you say that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world saves the town of Sychar in Samaria through a woman who goes out, meets Christ, sows seed, and the harvest, the planting and the harvest all happen simultaneously. May God lift our eyes to see that the fields are white to harvest. May God lift our eyes to see the Savior who is harvesting. He's harvested our hearts, our lives, and He's harvesting others. May He join us in a more compelling way. May we be joined to His mission. And may we have eyes to see and hearts that are sensitive and ears that are listening, looking for opportunities to see what He's doing and to take initiative to to plant seed to see what he's doing and watch him work. Let's pray. 
been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.